It's episode 75 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Dean. Today on the program is Jeff Kahn. He's the founder and CEO of Rise Science, and we're going to talk about the unique opportunities designers have as entrepreneurs and how that can change the outcomes for startups. Jeff, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I am thrilled you're here. Uh, I, I want to talk about what you're doing at Rise Science, as well as just how you got there, uh, what your pathway was there. Um, and if I'm if I remember correctly, you're you're based in Chicago, isn't that right? That's right. Yeah, it's about man. On Monday, we got tons of snow, and it was about 15 degrees. So. Welcome, welcome to the winter. Yeah. Are, you, are you in a polar yeah, vortex? Exactly. Is <laughs> I think we got some polar chill coming over and it's supposed to be like 45, uh, but, but yeah, well, it is chilly out there. It's damp and cold in London, but that's not a surprise. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you've, you, you're, you're able to join us. I, I mentioned that Chicago because frankly, I think it's so cool that, um, that you're starting up a company there and not just like packing your bags and going out to Silicon Valley. Like uh, it seems the myth kind of entails, you know? Yeah, no. Well, and the funny thing is, I'm actually from Southern California, and then moved out here about ten, yeah, almost ten years ago to go to school, actually to pursue a different kind of design education, and and uh, stayed here ever since because the community has been so great. Yeah, that's great, and and it, and it really is. Uh, I know that uh, True Ventures has invested not only in you. I should mention that, by the way, that you're part of our portfolio, but uh, not only in you, but uh, in a, a couple other companies in Chicago. There's a few. Uh, there's quite a few other startups. I mean, famously, Thirty Seven Signals. We had Jason Freed on the program uh, a number of months ago, uh, and they built and grew their whole company uh, right there in Chicago as well. So, lots going on. Yeah, no, there is. And I think what, what, what's just been so nice about it, and I think maybe what shares some similarity with Silicon Valley is just the emphasis on community and help. I mean, there's just no shortage of, um, you know, people that want to help out and, and, and give advice and, um, and are willing to just be really generous. So that's been a big driver for us. And you, you can go to a cafe and sit down and not hear every single person next to you talking about their air round. So it's, a, it's kind of a nice balance, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. my gosh. No, yeah, that's, that's, that's very, very foreign here. Yeah, go to the Blue Bottle uh, Cafe in South Park uh, in San uh, Francisco. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm I'm picturing it right now. It's like Shark Tank. It's <laughs> it, it, yeah, great yeah, coffee. Though. It really is. It is. It is really good coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so like I said, you you have a design background, but you've taken the sort of entrepreneurial path. I want to talk about that, but before we do, uh, can we talk a little bit about just what Rise does? Um, uh, and what you've been working on. Yeah. So I would say for the past, well, since 2011, really, when I got interested in sleep, I uh, really been working on how do we help people become better at sleeping, the the, the skill of sleeping. And so today, um, we've got a mobile app that people can download. And hopefully, we're, we're delivering on that promise of helping them become better sleepers. Um, and really inspired by, you know, what we've learned working with people over the last 11 years in the space trying to help them become better and uh, and then the science that's been done uh, as well in the field which there's almost a hundred years which is kind of mind-blowing uh, and actually started funny enough in, in Chicago uh, back in 1925 so that's that's what we're up to studying the the science of sleep to be able to to create an experience for people to help them is, is that what you're sort of yeah well the the very first uh, you know sleep science as a field has been around for almost 100 years. So that's more just about how how does sleep affect us as humans? How does it affect everything we do in our lives? How long we live, quality of life, all that stuff. But 
but yeah, the past, I'd say seven years for me has really been about, you know, how do you take all the wealth of, of data that's out there about sleep uh, and, and help people and motivate people, inspire people to, you know, modify their sleeping patterns and behaviors to ultimately feel a lot better, live longer, um, create, create that better world that, that, that we want to see. So. All good things for sure. Yeah. So how did you, <laughs> how did, how did, what was your path to get here? Yeah. Um, so as I said, I, I grew up in Southern California. I was a uh, second of four. Um, I had a, always a, a sort of strong, I don't know, I was cl- close to the concrete of, of, of the business, I guess you could say. My dad was like a small business entrepreneur and, mm. um, and my mom was actually a therapist. So growing up, I would, you know, spend weekends as a cashier cutting foam. It was a foam and fabrics upholstery supply store. <laughs> and so like always really close to like, whoa, there, you've got customers coming in. There's a business. People rely on this. Um, and then I'd go home and we'd talk about, you know, how people feel. And my mom would be talking about her work and stress and anxiety. And so what I was really interested in was human health and just how important it was. And this is even from a pretty young age, you know, early in high school, just how it's so foundational to what we what we do and just the, the, the short time we have on this planet. Mm. And um, I actually came across Don Norman's work because he was talking a lot about uh, actually, he wrote a particular essay called How Design Education Needs to Change. And the whole thesis was, hey, the, the, the problems that, that um, are facing today's society are really complex. They're not just sort of basic physical tools uh, anymore. They're about complex organizational issues and political issues and, um, you know, a lot of behavioral complexity. And so we need to be thinking more rigorously about, about design beyond Kind of what's been taught uh, classically more in, 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 from an industrial design approach. And he was actually at Northwestern and he had a master's program there that he had put together. And so I, I wanted to go, uh, when I was looking at schools, go and study with him. Um, I couldn't go directly into a master's program, <laughs> but what ended up happening from and how I got to uh, how I got to Chicago was that I sent Don an email and I just said, Hey, I, I'm looking for some advice on on how I could sort of implement your, your nice ideas that you put in this essay in, in, into a, you know, four-year undergrad degree. So I ended up, I ended up doing that undergrad um, and then ended up also uh, taking the, the, the sort of master's program that he put together really on just human-centered design principles. So, you know, much less uh, on the art side of things, which I think is essential, uh, much more on um, how to do user research, how to do prototyping, um, how to do that in, in a physical product context, uh, sort of service design context, um, interaction design context. And, um, and it was actually there, uh, you could even say earlier in my career, well, like uh, back when I started uh, my, my undergraduate years where um, I would be up late at night working on problem sets up early in the morning, not feeling very good. <laughs> I think that's a feeling most of us can empathize with. And um, that led me to start saying, you know what, I'm creating my own degree anyway. Um, why don't I go ahead and start studying uh, sleep science? And there weren't any classes offered, but I, I tracked down some professors that were doing research in the area. And um, a year into that, basically realized, wow, if people just got a little more sleep, the world would be fundamentally better in pretty much any every way imaginable. Like it was this fantasy of like, well, is there, you know, and the, the numbers on that are kind of interesting. So the, the average need is about eight hours and 10 minutes. That's uh-huh. how much we need as, as, uh, as people. Um, and uh, everyone's different. So, you know, some of us might, might need seven and a half. Some of us might need nine. It's, it's a genetic factor, like, you know, how, how tall you are. Um, but 
the fascinating thing is we're getting about a little over six. And so it was this two hour delta that if we could close the gap on that somehow, um, you know, we'd see people living longer, the every, you know, most chronic disease rates would fall, uh, you know, cognitively, you're, you're, you find focus, more creativity, more insight. I think i on the emotional side, even too, it's just, we talk a lot about, um, you know, EQ on, on the true side of things like yeah, yeah. your empathy increases by 30%. Uh, when, when you get more sleep, people can pick it up in your vocal tone. Like you're just perceived as more positive when you have more, like there's all these fascinating things about it. And I was like, wow, why aren't people getting more sleep? Um, and that's really what led to kind of this, just this whole fascination of like how much better the world could be and sort of how underserved that problem was of just not getting enough sleep. And could we even move the needle there? So I'll stop there. But, um, that, that's sort of what led me into it was like, man, this is a problem that if we could solve, the world would be so much better. And this just seems like we could solve it. Like, it just seems like we could have an impact here if we just understood this well enough. Yeah. And it seems to be increasingly in the media and well, as well. Uh, there's been a few books lately and just talking about just how incredibly important it is to get not just enough sleep, but good quality sleep, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Both of the, and there's a lot of um, interesting nuances around, around all of that, that, that we like to dig into and yeah. that we learn with, with our users. Yeah. So you were you were studying sleep kind of in parallel with getting a degree uh, in human factors and hu human centered design. Yeah. So my yes is the short answer. My undergraduate degree was actually in engineering school. So learned a lot about um, you know how to just really hardcore science, experimental design, uh, a lot of like data science, that sort of stuff. And then and that's really where I started getting into into it. But then as I moved over to studying, you know, more human-centered design as, as part of a graduate program, that was where I kind of got even more into it um, and started really to say, oh, wow, I'm learning about design research from, uh, you know, the design research leads at IDEO in Chicago. Like, oh, I can directly apply this to what I'm doing. Yeah. Or, whoa, you know, we, we were doing some work um, with an NFL team. They had found out about some results that, that we had worked on and saying like, wow. Um, the, the methods I'm learning in design research, like that's helping me understand what this NFL team wants. And now they're really interested in having us provide it to them because they've really felt understood. So that is sort of coming back to my design program. And I was telling everyone who's, you know, there are maybe 15 of us in the program, like, Hey, all these skills we were learning are so valuable. And I would just be so excited to, to come to, to class every day, being able to apply th those sorts of skills. See that sort of educational uh, approach to user-centered design and human factors I mentioned earlier that and HCI human computer interaction all of that stuff was uh, very very prevalent when I started my career way back in the 90s and always very very rigorous rigorous to the point where it was uh, never it never really got a lot of traction in business right um and and i think that had to do with the fact that there were such like formalized process around this and um and statistical significance and and on and on and on and all, all of this stuff that it feels like it felt like when we were first starting on the web we took very very simplified and kind of watered down versions of that so that we could kind of stick it in every week to the work that we were doing right mm -hmm. um and so i've often wondered like what like and I think a lot of people have gone back and, and said, like, what have we missed and things like that. But I still wonder, uh, 
if uh, the value, and, and if you don't mind me asking, wh- when were you doing the studying? This was 2014. All right. So, so it's really recent. Not too long ago. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and it sounds like you found the, the rigor to be entirely uh, applicable to what the work you were doing outside of class. Yeah. No. And it was, um, yeah. And that's sort of what was fascinating for me was my undergraduate was very much about, you know, experimental design and, and rigor from a statistical perspective. And we would run, you know, we, we were doing studies with the, the football team about how to help their players get more sleep. And then we'd measure, oh, how does it affect reaction time and play execution rates and moods of the players and all that sort of stuff. And that was like very statistical. But what really mattered was, hey, how do we build an experience that these players that, you know, many of them were my peers, like, how, how are we going to build something that's actually going to help them get more sleep in this very constrained world of, you know, elite sport and, and academia? And, but what gave me the tools to start to figure that out was like, Hey, here's how you do ethnography. You know, here's what it looks like. Here's why that stuff is important. Here's how to synthesize it and bring it all together. Here's, you know, a process that you can use to, to, to prototype with. And so that just became so powerful as we were getting to the early stages of, you know, what initially was a fascination with a, a topic that then kind of because, uh, you know, initially the, the school's football team was interested and then other pro teams started finding out it sort of became this business um, w- without necessarily it uh, at, at any point where we're like, oh, let's, let's go start a business. Uh, it just <laughs> sort of happened. As the best do. I think that's, that's great. Like, hey, the, the stuff we're working on, turns out people want this, you know, that kind of um, almost backing into it that way, I think can often be a, yeah. a great, a great way to get started. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess uh, to kind of go back to my what, what I was talking about just a little bit ago, the idea of having very qualified researchers in in a company uh, is not necessarily new. But I guess I guess the thing that I've always struggled with is that I've never mm-hmm. seen them directly connected to the the decision making of the business in any significant mm-hmm. way. It will happen from time to time, or maybe we'll go commission a study. But to say to have like the boardroom, right, or the the, yeah. the C suite, all of those C level people um, turning to like a chief research officer or something, saying, "Could you do you know what does the qualitative research tell us uh, about where we should move our business and how should we prioritize our things and stuff like that?" I've just never felt like the human computer interaction or human factors or user centered design world has played at that level. It was one of the reasons that I went into becoming an entrepreneur is because I was like, well, I think I could be competitive that way if I did that. Right. right. So, Oh, totally. And why do you think, like, what is your, ta- or why do you think that that's not normal? Like, it seems to me like that's such a missing piece when you're making a decision about where you go as a business of like, well, what's the experience of the people using whatever it is we're providing? I think, yeah, and exactly. Are, you know, right. And I think part of it has to do with, this idea of we we are very customer centered we talk we listen to our customers we go out and meet with our customers and so focused on customers that it, uh but i have always found that process has nothing to do with ethnography right it is right. that is entirely like you tell me what you want and i will build it uh and right. you can have that conversation with 20 people and get 20 different answers and there's 20 new features in your app uh but they may not be solving any of the problems people actually have yeah that's Something we've been uh, working to get better at is, especially when you went in the early days, this was such a big barrier for us was, uh, you know, when you're at an agency or you've got resources and you've got someone that's recruiting and coordinating and getting all the research done, um, or at least setting it up for you. How, you know, how do you do it when you're 
four people and you've got, you're doing everything. Like how do you fit in user research? And, how, and so that was a huge challenge for us that we've tried solving of like, how do we make it just part of what we do, you know, every week. And so I think that's something we've gotten better at over time, but, yeah. but yeah, I, I, to give you an example, we had actually one of our board members uh, come out to Chicago and visit us. And before he came out, you know, he wanted to have a conversation about product strategy. We said, Hey, you know, here's uh, three handpicked interviews that are kind of really open-ended, more ethnographic in nature. You know, I'd just like you to watch those as homework, basically, before <laughs> we talk about product strategy, because without that, it's it, it, like, th- this is this is the input that we're making decisions based off of. Yeah. Um, and so that was one little moment, maybe, where it was like, okay, that maybe research was happening at that level, but, you know, we're still a small group. <laughs> well, and getting a board member to do homework is a Herculean task. <laughs> I can tell yeah, that's, that, yes. Um, yes. We're going to, let, let me take a little break. I got a bunch more questions for you, but we're going to hear from one of our sponsors now. Cool. So look, the holiday shopping season, Boxing Day, Black Friday, all of that are just around the corner. I'm online all the time buying stuff. I know you are too. I was uh, earlier today trying to order a turkey online uh, for us to have as a big meal. Uh, And I know that when I'm shopping online, there's a little worse than having a shopping cart just fail. Uh, Or the website is suddenly unavailable. You get some weird 500 error or something like that. Look, if you are responsible for anything online, Pingdom will let you know the moment that thing goes down. Uh, and, it'll, and they'll do that in whatever way is best for you. They use transaction monitoring to, to alert you when a cart checkout or forms or login pages fail uh, before they affect your customers and before they affect your business. You can customize how you're alerted and who is alerted depending on the severity of the outage. So if you go to pingdom.com, slash relay fm right now you can get a 14-day trial with no credit card required then when you sign up you can use the code presentable at checkout and they'll knock 30 percent off your first invoice which is really impressive so uh go check out pingdom now uh pingdom.com slash relay fm thanks to pingdom for their support of this show and all of relay fm all right great that's uh awesome you were you're we were talking a little bit about how we uh, how how like a startup of, of four people can possibly do research? And I think the answer there is that is just the way you do business. That is just the way you make decisions. <laughs> you just decide yeah. like we're four people. I think it's much harder to get a 400-person company to start than for a four-person company to figure out when we have time to do it. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, I thought a little bit like when when we started Typekit. 10 years ago, uh, I was, I, I remember, uh, Ryan Carver, our CTO having a bunch of like goals for how we were going to create this product before we even started and kind of even before we even knew what it really was going to be. But that meant like, Oh, I want to use very contemporary programming languages. I want to, I want to do continuous integration. I want to do, you know, all of the sort of stuff that ended up rolling up into DevOps was a goal that he had from the very beginning. So like he's setting up a continuous integration server before we even know what the product is. So that like, Oh, let me see how this all works. And now my first line of code, Oh, the test passed, you know, he's, he's right, right. right from the beginning. And, and a little bit too, I was like, all right, we're going to, we're going to do this thing with fonts. Uh, I got a list of 25 designers. I respect a lot. I'm just going to tell them the idea and listen to what they say for a while. You know, and I did. Yeah. I spent two weeks on the on on Skype, just talking and talking and talking and talking to people, and it wasn't a formalized ethnography or a contextual inquiry, but it was. Um, man, did I hear a lot of different opinions and a lot of different needs that people had and how they were doing their work, and it was just insanely valuable. 
one of the challenges I think we've run into, and I think that's pretty common is, you know, how do you, there's, I think this fine line between, um, you know, it obviously depends on the training of, of who's running the research and the synthesis and the interpretation and you know, all that can get to be pretty complex, but run it, you know, I think it's easy at this point. Now we've got this really interesting process where we can get, you know, users, we want users to talk to you tomorrow. We want beta users that, you know, folks that have used the app or we want, fresh users um, that have never heard about us before, and we want to take them through a new onboarding flow. Um, we've been able to use Facebook in some interesting ways to get those folks really fast. Oh, and that's so, interesting. Um, yeah, and there's it solved a really big barrier of like, how do we actually get users? Um, but, uh, and if ever, anyone wants to talk more about it, they can reach out to me uh, or after. But <laughs> this fine balance between inspiration and then, you know, and what you're hearing from users versus, you know, really making decisions based off what they're saying. And I think that's something that, you know, obviously refines over time, but I've seen us spend some cycles of like, well, this, you know, these couple of users said this, and I have to sometimes step in and, and sort of coach, you know, our team on, okay, but what, what really, what's the deeper job behind that? What yeah. really are they saying? What, how do we get inspired by that and not necessarily be, be led um, or, or sort of directed by it? Yeah, it's always that so. sort of that, that very nuanced way of of teasing out the difference between what somebody wants and what they need, right? And yeah, um, yeah. and really trying to understand how to get there. And I think a great interviewer with a lot of strong ethnography skills can really go a long way into mm-hmm. kind of teasing that out in real time, you know. Mm-hmm. 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 But again, those people are hard to find. So they are. Yeah, um, yeah it really is. So. Let me back up a little bit uh, on your pad. You, you were talking about you were in school. You were you were both learning all of these research methodologies and design principles, as well as kind of doing some work on sleep and 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 you had some, I guess, more like clients and you were consulting. It felt more like, yeah, yeah, it was sort of like a independently led research project, and I, where everything sort of led, they led, and I was just having a good time with with my now co founder Leon, but we were just having a good time doing it, and then. Uh, what, what made you decide, like, I think this, like a startup and raising money and, and hiring employees, like that, that's the path that this could be much bigger than what we're doing. And I guess, crucially that, uh, how, how did you feel qualified to do that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, so let me, I'll, I'll caveat one thing. Like I didn't feel qualified to do it. Well, nobody I didn't does. Feel that's qualified. kind of a loaded yeah, question. Like the, but feeling, yeah, yeah. the feeling there was, was, was not there, but the way that it, the way that it happened was you know, after two years of working with Northwestern's football team, you know, again, I was you know, undergrad and then started to started to to finish out a graduate program. Like, you know, I felt like I knew a decent amount about sleep. I knew because I'd spent so much, you know, I'd go to players' houses and I'd see what their night routines were and I'd see what happened when they wake up in the morning and I'd go bike to the weight room at 4.30 in the morning, <laughs> you know, in, in, in negative five degree weather and run run these tests and see what it looked like when they went to get their ankles taped you know that those are a lot of the early day just understanding that the context that that we're designing for um you know and that was that was back then but i really felt like i understood the the, the problem we were trying to solve and so what happened was we had you know the, the elite sport world is pretty um pretty tight-knit and so other professional teams started finding out about some of the results we were having and they just said, Hey, you know, what are you doing? They would contact Northwestern. They'd say, what are you doing with sleep? And then Northwestern would say, Hey, we'll talk to Jeff. You know, he's, he's sort of working on this. And, um, and it would just be conversations, you know, regular conversations. I didn't know it was a sales conversation. I didn't know anything about how to really think about that. But then these pro teams would invite us out and they'd say, Hey, 
you know, I was up with the Cincinnati Bengals and they, they, they'd say, Hey, well, you know, can you, can you do what you did for Northwestern for us? And like, can you go and then like talk to all of our players about, you know, how we're going to schedule, uh, our upcoming Monday night football game. And what, so I had a lot of knowledge. We didn't really have a product at the time, but sort of what turned this into like, okay, maybe there's a business was we had, um, so sort of a lot of engagements like that. And then we had, uh, one particular, uh, team, university of Tennessee football that their head coach was just fascinated with sleep and thought it was really important. And, um, we, he, he said, Hey, you know, can you, can you do this? What you did for Northwestern for my team. And we, we got some advice at that time from some, you know, some folks that were in the entrepreneurial space of like, okay, if they're asking for it, like, you know, you should probably have a contract and you should be thinking about, you know, how you're going to do it. And so we got our first contract from the university of Tennessee. Uh, I think it was, you know, it was, it was something like 25,000 or $35,000 for the year. Um, and that was like a real contract. And we said, okay, this is, this is interesting. Like we're, <laughs> you know, maybe there's something here. But that was really that first moment where it was like, okay, there's a thing here. Like people really want to pay for this and they're willing to trust. You know, I wasn't an expert. I wasn't well known in the space. I had, you know, all I had done was sort of work with the, the you know, the football team. And um, so anyway, that, that, that moment was definitely a big turning point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's a there's a few sort of you can really boil down the 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 first few years of a startup into things like um uh all, all you really need to worry about are are absolutely prioritizing everything that you do and what you work on now and later and never. Uh not running out of money and then hiring, yeah. right? Like yeah. Hi, and yeah. and I skipped over the money one really quickly. We don't have to talk about that one. <laughs> but but the hiring thing I'm really interested in particularly because I I experienced this myself being uh, somebody with a design background uh you know calling myself a designer having to go out and hire like engineers and having to hire uh salespeople and mm-hmm. and trying to figure that out and and like how do i just how do i tell if they're good and and on and on and on how, how how's that been for you hard i think everyone says how hard it's been i sort of say there's like there were two phases there have been, I almost feel like two startups uh, at Rise. One was this sort of elite athletic period where we worked with, you know, a lot of the pro sports teams and that was the focus. And then there's sort of this period now, um, probably really started like, you know, around mid-2018 where it's really focused on the broader goal that, you know, Leon and I really cared about, which was how do we help, you know, lots of people sleep. Um, and to do that, we need to build a consumer product and we need to build a consumer product team. And then sort of how do we hire that team? And um, it's... What, I get uh, the way that I learned about it. One was uh, talking with someone that has just recently done this. I know you had Jason uh, Jason Freed on on the podcast, uh, not not too uh, or I guess pretty recently. And yep. one of the things that I really like that he says that that I think is just so spot on. He's like, if you want to talk about venture capital, like don't come to me. Like if you want to talk about starting a business, don't come to me. Like I haven't done that in twenty years. Like go <laughs> find the person that just did the thing that you want to do. And so that's what I would do is I would spend a lot of time with other folks like just hired their first salesperson. And I would just say, okay, here's the problem. Here's how I'm thinking about it. Here's, you know, here's literally like the job letter that I wrote, or here's the, and I just have them comment and give me critique in the way that you might have, you know, design critique. And just that process of creating a thing that someone can react to as a prototype, having, you know, sort of an expert that I, that I trust that's done it before, give me feedback, incorporate that that's been sort of a high level process for it. But man, we there's a lot of learnings along the way of things that I would 
continue to do. And then so many different practices that I just wouldn't do. Um, but and we can get into more details there too, if you, if you're interested. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, well, let me ask you then like a, a related question, which I think the hardest thing for a designer to hire for is a designer. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, I need to find somebody to do the thing I think I should be doing. Uh, I found yeah. that, uh, to be, to be quite challenging as well. So uh, what's that process been like? Yeah, it's really hard to find the right the right fit for us. Um, I think maybe we've finally cracked the nut, but it, it's it's only been I would say you know we 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 you know I'd done a, a lot of the initial work on the product and and um, it's been so hard to find a designer because we're especially like you know let's say in both phases whether it was in the sport phase or um, you know where we are now it was just still such early discovery. And so finding a designer that is able to just be with that ambiguity, but then, you know, be and be able to explore and have the right judgment of what, like, there just aren't many designers that have that experience and that have done that a bunch. And so I really had to get good at explaining like, hey, here's who I think this role is for. And here's what, who this role isn't for. And so I just tried to like, and, and this is because I made, made a couple of mistakes early on where. I wasn't able to explain it clearly. And I just thought I'd be able to find the right person. And there wasn't a, a method to it. And so um, kind of pulling back, uh, one of the things that I tried doing was articulating in this letter, sort of what I called a job letter, you know, who this role is for and who it wasn't for. And trying to use that as an artifact to get people to say, hey, you know what, like, yeah, this role isn't for me. And that's okay. Do you mean that you used you, you wrote a letter as a as the job description that people would read yeah. to decide if they wanted to apply? Exactly. Oh, okay. So no job description. It, I just I called it a job letter. It was really a letter to our future designer. Like it was a letter to the person that would would take this role um, about why this is an important problem. About you know what would be true for this role not to be for you. What would need to be true for this role to to be for for you um, and. Just really, actually, Don Norman. I remember that he came to town and 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 um, talked to the the masters group, and a lot of the designers were asking about how to get their first job. And he said, and I just thought this was so insightful, and it stuck with me. He's like, you know, your jo- the job of like your resume and the interview process and all that. He's like, it's not to please everyone. Like, you don't want to get yeses from everyone. You only want to get yeses from the right people. Mm. So, how do you construct your what what you're putting forward to? you know, ideally attract the the person, the, the type of opportunity you want and detract the, the opportunity that you don't want. And, um, and so I think that just taking that really strongly, uh, in, uh, has helped, but man, it's still really, really hard. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Uh, let's take another break, uh, and hear from another one of our sponsors. And this episode of presentable is brought to you by our friends at Kensington. Uh, they are the people that make universal docking stations that are designed to increase your productivity. You get access to all sorts of ports that you don't have on your very sleek MacBook or Chromebook or other laptop. But uh, by adding a docking station, you can make it as powerful as a desktop. It's plug and play, no drivers uh, at all. So you can enjoy up to dual 4K display with HDMI and DisplayLink video connectors, plus USB 3, USB-C, and Thunderbolt 3 with power delivery available. Uh, Kensington engineering team has three decades of experience making these things in high volume uh, manufacturing 
of their high of their hardware IT products plus rigorous test cycles quality control means all of their products are tested above industry standards. Uh, so if you're an IT decision maker and you're looking to find the right docking solutions for everybody on your team, check Kensington's Pro Concierge program and test drive a docking solution today. Visit kensington.com slash presentable right now to check out Kensington. That's kensington.com slash presentable to learn more. Thanks to Kensington for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Tell me, t- I want to focus a little bit more on uh, on sales uh, because uh, that just seems at, at some level so far removed from the design process. Can you Can you tell me about what you've been doing with your company? So, you know, I think it goes back to some of those early conversations, you know, while I was in design school, learning about design research methods, uh, and then also having these conversations as I was sort of taking on this side project for sleep with these, you know, NFL teams and, and other college teams. And, you know, normally I wouldn't have known how to even approach a conversation with someone I don't know. I don't know what their needs are. I have no idea what they're interested in. And I just found like, you know, the, one of the most basic golden rules, you know, in, in, in research that at least has been very valuable for, for me that I found useful. And I think this is also true in sales is that you want the person you're talking to, to be talking most of the time. And you get there by asking open-ended questions. And Jeff, I think you're doing a great job on, on this interview. Uh, if I was grading myself as a seller on this interview, I would not be doing very well. <laughs> um, but that's, that's the that was sort of the ethos going into a lot of these early I, I didn't know them as sales calls at the time i wouldn't call them sales calls but they really were and what ended up happening was um by asking these open ended questions by asking being able to go deeper by you know not by b- taking really thoughtful notes after and synthesizing and then relay you know relay that back to uh you know if it was a strength coach or whoever whoever i was talking with at the time they just, they loved that. They felt really heard. They felt like I understood their needs. And, um, and so I think that's really what great sales is, is about understanding who the customer is, understanding what their needs are and whether or not, and this is maybe the thing that, that you, you don't do as much in design, but whether or not the thing that you have or the promise that you can offer is, is sort of a fit for their needs. But that part I feel like is easier once you really understand the needs. And so that, process, it just felt so natural coming from, you know, sitting in class, learning about design research methods, then going to talk with, uh, you know, the owners of the Cincinnati Bengals and talk to them about, you know, how we were going to help their team sleep. Like it just felt so natural. Yeah. And so I would say like that great, uh, you know, re- I, I think really great, uh, background in design research is just like a critical ingredient. And I think designers could be great salespeople if, if they have that training and strength. Interesting. Yeah, it is. I, I had similar experience. In fact, one of the things we say to all of the, the companies that we invest in is that if a founder can't sell the product, then they're not making the right product, right? Like, right. And, and very quickly, they should hand that off because they shouldn't spend all of their time trying to sell the product. But at least in the first, at the initial stages of, of the development of the company, absolutely. And I did that myself uh, sure. in, in the companies that I've uh, started. Uh, and then they would say like, oh, that sounds great. We really want to use the product. Just send us a contract. I'm like, oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. We need some infrastructure here to be able to do all of that. Yeah. But, but, right. um, but that conversation is, you're, you're very much, uh, spot on where it is really ethnography that, that we're doing. Yeah. We're trying to understand what their needs are and see if the thing we have will fit. So yeah, that's, a, that's really interesting. So how do you have a salesperson now or are you still doing it? 
Yeah, no, we, we, so we did on the elite side, the elite athletic side, uh, after I sold maybe the first 10 or so teams, then I did bring someone on, which was awesome. And then as now we're exploring kind of who are right customers today, and we've got some interesting uh, work with Fortune 200 customers, and actually Basecamp, Jason was one of our very first uh, cool. uh, customers. <laughs> um, I've been doing a lot of that, I would say selling, but a lot of it's just still pretty early stage to figure out where do we even focus our, where do we focus the the limited resources that we do have there? And, but yeah, it's really mostly me and then Nick on our team is doing a lot of, you know, what's called customer success. So making sure that they're successful hmm. uh, all the way through. And, and so we, t- we talked earlier about like some process around, uh, user testing and, and, uh, and doing user research and things like that. Have you been able to sort of get a routine going, get a rhythm going in your, your small company? Yeah, I think we have, and we haven't for a while, but, um, the unlock for us was, you know, how do we get, how do we get people to talk with and how do we make sure that it can be pretty easy that, you know, someone could take 20 minutes and get it scheduled. And the unlock was that uh, we had worked with a design firm out in Berlin and they, they were doing the design sprint process and they would use Facebook. They had just had this ad that said product testers wanted. Um, and they would use this ad to, to recruit people. And then they'd, you know, if you click the Facebook ad, then you go to a, a screener. Um, and then after the screener, you know, you, the, the, you know, they'd say, oh, okay, here's the five people that we want to interview today. And I was just like, whoa, that works really well and it's cost effective um, and it's super open-ended. So you could have, do more contextual inquiry. Ethnography is a little harder over Zoom, like, <laughs> you know, true ethnography. But uh, but that was, we said, okay, could we try that? And turns out, you know, we, we just literally put a Facebook ads, huh. you know, it doesn't look very good, but it just says, you know, hey, product testers wanted, um, you know, if you, we were testing a, a new sleep app. And if you spend 30 minutes with us, we'll give you 30 bucks. And, um, and we get, and we make them fill out a, a long screener. So we know who we're talking to. And that works really well. Like if we wanted five users tomorrow to talk to, we can, I could set that up this afternoon and have five people ready to go tomorrow. Um, so that was sort of a magical unlock for us where then it became part of our process. And now we've got two designers on the team and they're, you know, using that for usability. We're doing a lot of more like job discovery, um, uh, type of interviews as well through that. And so we've started to kind of get more sophisticated also of like, how do we document and synthesize this in an ongoing process? Um, that wasn't something I had had to do before. So how, how do we do that? See themes and trends over time and make decisions based off of that. So, um, but yeah, that just that simple uh, unlock to use Facebook, use type, we type form is great as a, as a screening tool. Yeah, and yeah. then just having it over zoom. And we use Figma prototypes. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. it, it, it works super well. You've got all the cloud tools. Yeah, all the cloud tools. <laughs> it's easy for us to do. Easy, easy now for us to add new tools. And then, so t- tell me about the next step then. You're still a small team. You've got uh, lots of fodder uh, from this research. How about incorporating it and, and, and acting on it and like gleaning insights and stuff like that? How's that been going? Yeah, it's, it's scary and good. Um, and what I mean by that is like, we make big changes pretty quickly. So, uh, you know, the, we, we launched the MVP of the product back in April and we would, uh, test, you know, get new cohorts every two weeks or so, uh, also from Facebook and we get with them on the phone and we talk with them about it. And, um, 
you know, we'd learn, wow, this concept called sleep debt is super compelling. So then we've redesigned a lot of the product around sleep debt. And then we had that as the core part of the product. And then we talk with more users and they're like, oh, this, this part's really compelling about what you're, about what you're working on. And, and that would help in shape, you know, the next six, seven weeks uh, of work and what we wanted to go solve. And so it's been this iterative process, but what's scary about it is, yeah, there's no, you know, it's not like we've got this roadmap out going out years and years or, or even a year, right? It's like, we are really learning as we as we go. And we've got this learning object out in the wild that people are interacting with um, that we think, at least for some people, is really effective and life-changing t- today, but we want to make that more. And um, and so we sort of treat it like this, you know, ever-evolving uh, sort of learning object for us to do more research on and to learn and implement and then see, okay, how is it how is it actually changing our our, our key numbers um, uh, to really answer like, hey, is there, can we build something that people really love that's effective? And then the sort of second question is, well, can you build a business off of it to stay in business? Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of, you know, how do we keep the lights on sort yeah. of thing? But yeah. so now we're starting to do both of those together where I'd say for the first num- couple of months, it was much more just like, can we build a thing that people will use right. for, for, for a while? And we've answered some of the big questions there. And now it's like, okay, but how do we get them to pay for it? What's right. the right way? What makes sense? Um, and so that's sort of a whole other design project as well that's ongoing. Yeah, but the the idea of even conceptualizing your app out in the world as a learning object, I think is it's a part of your DNA that I see so many companies just don't have, right? That they, yeah, it's, they just don't think yeah. of it as this is an opportunity for us to learn and improve and learn and improve and iterate that way. So I think that's uh I think that's powerful. Yeah, it's it's but it's it's super uncomfortable. Like it's uncomfortable <laughs> because, you know, Odie who's who's, you know, our product manager, he probably has the hardest job in the company, like he it's you know, he he's really in the weeds every day talking with lots of users and and it's not like hey, we have this grand master plan of what's happening in the next 6 months. Um and that can make, you know, board members uncomfortable, it can make sometimes employees uncomfortable if they don't understand it, mm. make me uncomfortable. So like it really requires that you're sort of in the weeds and that everyone's on the same page with what users are saying and what job we're solving for them. And, um, you know, that, that, and then the other kind of point that we've, I think made some mistakes that we're now correcting, um, as a company is because we've taken this learn approach, you know, this is a learning object. We're going to see what, 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 you know, how people are reacting. It's that it's also easy to then have your product get worse. And so we had uh, the month of September, I think for us, what wasn't a great month on the product side. And, um, and it was because we shipped some things that we knew were broken, but we wanted to put them out there to learn. Mm. And then we learned that, that, okay, yeah, these don't work so well. And now we got to take them out, but it's expensive. It takes a lot of time. And yeah. so it's this balance between like, you know, what do you put out there so that it's, that we really believe is going to help someone and that they'll come back to and is, and, and is going to be a great experience for them. And then sort of balancing that with this other objective of learning. And so that's just a real trade-off where we are now, where we've got more users coming in, more people paying. And and now it's not like we can just throw something out and say, oh, well, let's see what happens. Yeah, that, that's always been an undercurrent of the minimum viable product sort of philosophy is as you're, as you're out there trying new things with your users, what is the impact on the, the brand experience they're having, right? Yeah. When, when you're making quick iterative changes that they don't like, um, well, you learn yeah. and you find out yeah. and you take them out, but yeah, you're right. It, it does, um, it can leave an impression. That's a, it's always a challenge. There's no good answer yeah. there, but, uh, yeah. 
But it sounds like it sounds like uh, you are trying to sort of practice that 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 idea of take the best practices of user experience as a foundation for how you run a business. And I'm uh, I'm very interested in that stuff. So uh, I really appreciate you sharing all of this with us today. Yeah, and I'm I I'm happy to share the learnings as we go, um, and the things that hopefully we succeed at, and the, and the things we fail at, and we've been given so much by by so many people that have been generous, and so any anything I can do to support, I'm I'm here and available and open. Fantastic. Uh, well, I'll connect everybody who's listening to you right now. You're you're JF Khan <laughs> at uh, Twitter, uh, and I'll put a link to that and Rise Science in the in the show notes for this episode, uh, so people yeah. can connect with you there and uh, and check out the app and um, absolutely and get a get a handle on their sleep. Super important. That's that. It's important. <laughs> well, Jeff, thanks so much for being on the program. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.